Hey everyone, this is Dr. John Chancy, host of the Knowledge Brew Supreme podcast. And I just wanted to take a quick moment before this week's episode starts. Uh, this is a very, very special episode for me personally. The episode you're about to hear is episode 50 of Knowledge Brew Supreme. And you know, that may not seem like much, but personally for me, it means a lot because when I first started this podcast, I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do with it. I just knew I wanted to have uh, good conversations with really smart and creative folks. And so far, so good. I've had so many amazing conversations and learned a lot. Uh, and I hope you have too. But one of my first episodes, one of my early episodes, I, I talked with uh, BJ Gador, uh, who's not only my, you know, my fitness trainer, but also was a guest on this show. And he said, hey, if you're trying to build a brand, if you're trying to build a podcast, and you really need to get to at least 100 episodes of content, uh, before you can really start making a push kind of in that field, you know, podcasting is a very crowded field. Um, so, you know, I, I'm now officially at the halfway point towards reaching that goal. And with that said, I just wanted to say thank you to everyone who's listened to the show. If you've shared it, if you've been a guest on my show, if you've been kind enough to do any of the above, I mean, just thank you so much. I mean, you know, this podcast is, is a lot of fun for me, but I also hope it's, it's an enjoyable listen for you. Um, I'm hoping, you know, these next 50 episodes and so on and so forth, uh, will get even better. I hope I can continue to learn and grow from this process. So thank you so much. Um, you know, I, I, I'm going to keep putting out more content, got a lot of cool episodes, you know, uh, I'm really excited about that I'm going to put out after this one. But just again, thank you so much for making this possible. Uh, and if, if you if you can, uh, I ask that you please not only listen to the show, but maybe subscribe so you get the updates. Also, please share with somebody, you know, maybe there's a conversation that resonated with you, share it with somebody else who you might think, you know, it might resonate with them as well. Uh, I'm working on a website. It's not quite done yet, but hopefully they'll get that done soon. I have a, now a couple social media pages for the website. There's an Instagram page and there's a Facebook group I'm working on. So I'll definitely be publishing those as well. So thank you again so much. Uh, and please take a uh, listen to episode 50 uh, with my guest, Chris Whipple. I hope you enjoy and thank you again. Take care. Bye. So having said that, when you talk about a Trump running and conceivably winding up in the Oval Office again, there are people, there was somebody who said, well, it's going to be like the Velociraptors who finally figured out how to open the door. Oh my goodness. That on a, you know, it was a kind of a, a memorable metaphor. Yeah. Uh, but I'm not so sure that'll be the case because in the course of his four years as president, Trump really arguably got worse and not better. Um, and one of the reasons was because he, you know, he discarded, he booted the only chief of staff who tried to tell him hard truths, namely John Kelly, <clears throat> who uh, certainly had his faults, but at least tried to impose some kind of discipline and decision-making. Welcome back to Knowledge Brew Supreme, the show that percolates your creativity. And it is I, your host, Dr. John Chansey, and I am back and better than ever. 
Before we begin today's episode, here is a quick ad from show sponsor Barnana Snacks to help pay the bills. All right, so my wonderful sponsors at Barnana Chips were so kind uh, to send me a care package with some wonderful snacks and wonderful chips of various kinds, different snacks to try. And I've been saving one for a while that I've been, been dying to try. And it's the organic plantain chips, spicy mango salsa, their kettle cook style chips. So I'm gonna do a live uh, first try, a live taste. Uh, and you can get my instant reactions to these chips. I've been dying to try these chips. Here we go, open up the bag. Give a smell test. Ooh, ooh! I can smell the the sweetness, the, the the spiciness. Okay, here we go. First chip. Oh yeah, oh yeah! I like that a lot. There's the flavor is a little subtle. The spice is kind of subtle, but you can taste the sweetness of the mango right away. But that spicy mango kind of the salsa. Um, kind of creeping up in the back. I can feel the spice in the back of my, the back of my mouth right now. It's really good. Um, it's not overpowering the mango, the sweetness, but the salsa taste together, not overpowering, but a nice kick, you know, um, be good to have a glass of water with these, but I'm not feeling like, oh my God, I absolutely have to rush out and drink a glass of water right now. I like that, that subtle spice, uh, and it combined with the sweetness. So let me give another chip. Good stuff. Good stuff. So check these out. They're Barnana spicy mango salsa. They're kettle style chip. It's fantastic. I would give it like an 11 out of 10. I don't know. Is that fair? But check it out. Thanks, Barnana. My guest for today's very, very special episode of Knowledge Brew Supreme is the one and only New York Times bestselling author, Chris Whipple. Chris is the author of two books that have made a huge buzz on the New York Times. The first one is Gatekeepers, which, I mean, I'm recording this audio, but I'm holding up the book now. Uh, I finished it fairly recently, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and it's about the uh, the White House White House Chief of Staffs uh, and how they define every presidency. He also has a second book out, which I'm currently in the middle of, uh, called Spy Masters: How the CIA Directors Shape History and the Future. But that's not all, folks. He has another book that I'm absolutely stoked that's coming out. You know, uh, pretty soon. I want to say it's it's January, but you know, you can correct me if I'm wrong about that. Um, the Fight for His Life Inside Joe Biden's White House. Um, so I've read Gatekeepers. I'm currently reading Spy Masters. Both are excellent reads. Uh, so Chris is a wonderful author, but that's not all he does, folks. He's also a political commentator. He's a former producer on 60 Minutes, a documentary filmmaker, and a speaker who makes regular contributions to news outlets like MSNBC, CNN, and Vanity Fair. So with all that said, Welcome to the show, Chris. How are you doing today? I'm great. It's good to be with you, John. Thanks. Of course, of course. Thanks for joining me today. So I want to get the first question or first place I want to I want to start is with gatekeepers because that was my first exposure to your written work. And I I loved it. I think like 
reading about the position of the chiefs of staff was so cool because it's just a it's just a position of in the in the federal government specifically in the executive branch i just was not all that familiar with so that was extremely enlightening but what i'm curious with to start like what got you interested in specifically studying chiefs of staff in the first place because you know so much attention goes to presidencies but after reading this book i mean i think you make a pretty clear case that the chief of staff is extremely important. Um, and so I, again, what motivated you to go down that route as far as writing a book for this position? Well, you know, it began with a phone call out of the blue from a stranger, Jules Naudet, who along with his brother, Gideon Naudet had produced uh, an iconic film about 9-11 called 9-11. And so the gatekeepers about the White House chiefs of staff really began as a documentary film. Uh, the Spy Masters, my second book, was also a documentary film before I wrote the book. In fact, a friend of mine at the CIA asked me once, uh, has anybody ever told you that you, you do this backwards? Most people write books and then turn them into films. Um, if, for me, it's been the other way around. So Jules called and said, we want to do a, a documentary film on the White House Chiefs of Staff. Uh, and we'd like you to partner in it. And... Uh, we're get, we'd like to track all these guys down and interview them. And so I thought for a second, how are we going to do that? Uh, these are people who do not generally talk about their private conversations with presidents. Sure. And about 10 seconds later, I said, I'm in. Let's do it. <laughs> and uh, so we went off and, and tried to get these guys to, uh, to agree to talk with us. Um, it's funny because I'd been at ABC News for a long time and before that CBS News, but I was off on my own as an independent filmmaker, just starting out, didn't have, you know, a Rolodex of all of these guys at my fingertips. And so I, my first thought was, how do you find a home address for Dick Cheney? <laughs> you know, I don't know where to begin. So my wife went off and she went online. She came back about an hour later and she said, I've got it. I said, got what? She said, Dick Cheney's home address. Oh, wow. I said, where did you find it? And she said, warcriminals.org. Oh, my goodness. That was so that was the big research breakthrough. Uh, and from there on, um, the rest is history was so you you managed to get all that of usually gets a pretty good laugh even from dick cheney by the way sure yeah. oh i imagine so that's what i was curious about so you managed to get all of these former chiefs of staff you know a large collection of them in the same room and you detailed that at the beginning of the book um was cheney the most i know you, you said it was fairly easy to find his address but was he was he one of the more difficult people to to get to agree to come or because it kind of seems like, you know, someone who is not only chief of staff, but also vice president. I mean, you know, there's there's a lot there that, you know, might have made it made it more difficult. I felt like kind of reading yeah. difficult for him. Well, Dick Cheney is a fascinating character because uh, obviously we all know him as as the, one of the most powerful and some would say uh, uh, too powerful uh, vice presidents in American history. But he's a fascinating character because when he was 34 years old, he was. White House Chief of Staff to Gerald Ford, the, the accidental president, they called him because he stepped into the role when Dick Nixon had to resign because of Watergate. Uh, but um, it, it, the process of getting all of these people to sit down, and at the time there were 17 living White House Chiefs of Staff. There are now, I think, 22, oh, wow. uh, including Ron Klain, the current chief. 
But at the time, it, it was a process of doing one after the other, after the other, they, they know each other, they talk to one another. And so we got Rumsfeld, Rumsfeld, uh, who was Jerry Ford's first chief of staff prior to Dick Cheney. Um, apparently Rumsfeld thought we were harmless and told Cheney, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Why don't you go ahead and do it? And that's sort of the way this thing works. I mean, all you have going for you is fairness and, um, and being honest with, with these people. I, I think we were, and I think they felt that we would give them a fair shake. So you spent a lot of time thinking about writing, communicating with, creating a documentary about you know chiefs, the chief of staff for the White House. So I'm curious, like kind of two-part question. Um, what makes for a good chief of staff? And then kind of conversely, what makes for a bad one? Like my first thought for the bad one was, I don't know, maybe you shouldn't use the job for your own personal benefit, kind of like Don Regan, or maybe maybe that's just a starting point. I don't know maybe what your opinion on that is. But we'll yeah, that's definitely uh, never a good idea. Um, <laughs> to begin with, um, I should say about having done the film first, that when we finished the film, I thought, and, and first of all, it ran for four hours in two parts on the Discovery uh, Channel. But I really felt at the time that it was an it was, we barely scratched the surface of this unbelievable untold story of these 17 living chiefs um, who arguably make the difference between success and disaster for every president. And so I, I felt compelled to do the book. And <clears throat> the answer to your question about what makes a good White House chief, there, there is no um, graduate school for becoming a White House chief of staff. There are no clear rules. You don't campaign for the job. Um, but what it's hard to overstate the importance of the position because the White House Chief of Staff is, is, is number one. He's the person the president depends on to execute his agenda. He's, he's the gatekeeper who in effect creates time and space for the president to think. He's the uh, honest broker of information, making sure that um, information is teed up on every side of an issue. Uh, he's the keeper of the daily message, making sure that everybody in the, in the administration is on the same page. Um, and at the end of the day, I, I mean, what, as the executor of policy, he's the, of, he's the person who really has to thread the needle between policy and politics. Um, you, have to, you have to be somebody who knows how to how to turn policy into reality. And ultimately the most important thing, a, a White House Chief of Staff has to be able to tell the president what he doesn't wanna hear. Yes. Um, without, without a doubt, that's what separates the good chiefs and the bad chiefs from the really, the great ones. And uh, needless to say, as most, most of us would, would uh, know by now that for the four years preceding Joe Biden, um, we didn't have any chiefs who could tell Donald Trump hard truths. Um, right. But anyway, that's what makes the good ones great. So, well, that's a really good segue then, because one of the things I also noticed about your writing, both in Gatekeepers and Spymasters, like 
you don't pull punches when it comes to the presidency of Donald Trump. I think like in the closing chapter, for example, in Gatekeepers, you know, you really highlighted how disorganized his presidency was from the get go. And a lot of it has to do with what you said. There really wasn't a chief of staff in place who could do the things to, you know, to help the, the, that, the executive branch function efficiently. There wasn't somebody there to tell him no or tell him the things he didn't want to hear. Um, I, you know, I don't want to go too far into the weeds on this, but let's just say hypothetically, if Trump were to run, like right now, it, we assume he will, but we don't, we don't know, you know, for sure. And he were to win the election, how do you predict he will do in this regard the second time around? Like, do you expect the same more kind of that chaos sort of chaotic nature? Or is there any chance he might have learned something like about leadership or about picking people, the right people, maybe this during the second time around? Well, let me just preface it by by pointing out that I, I was tr tough on Trump, but having said that, I one of the things that I'm proudest about uh, when it comes to the gatekeepers is that I I really didn't uh, choose favorites Certainly. from either side of the aisle. I mean, I think one of the things that I think everybody agrees with is that I was right down the middle. Um, I praised Republican chiefs when they were really effective, and I uh, went after Democratic chiefs when they weren't as well. Yeah. So I'm proud of that fact. And and so having said that, however, it's true that the Trump really was utterly unable to govern. It seems to me, and in large part, it was because he refused to empower anyone to tell him what he didn't want to hear. Um, I wrote a Washington Post op-ed at one point, and this was this this has as much to do with my book, The Spy Masters, as it does the gatekeepers. Um, CIA directors couldn't tell him anything either. Right. He re he was I called him the unbriefable president because he wouldn't listen to anything that didn't confirm his his previously held beliefs. Uh, so, you know, it was a combination with Trump of of not having not empowering anyone around him to get the job done um and um and being unable to uh to learn i mean there so having said that when you talk about a trump running and conceivably winding up in the oval office again there are people there was somebody who said well it's going to be like the velociraptors who finally figured out how to open the door oh my goodness <laughs> That on a you know it was a kind of a, a memorable metaphor. Yeah. Uh, but I'm not so sure that'll be the case because in the course of his four years as president, Trump really arguably got worse and not better. Um, and one of the reasons was because he you know he discarded he booted the only chief of staff who tried to tell him hard truths, namely John Kelly, <clears throat> who uh, certainly had his faults, but at least tried to impose some kind of discipline and decision-making. And he wound up with the ultimate sycophant at the end of his four-year term uh, in the form of Mark Meadows. Uh, and so Trump really didn't learn anything, in my view, as president, and in fact, only got worse. And um, you know, in, in part, we, as a result of that, we had a thoroughly bungled management of the pandemic uh, and an insurrection on, attempted insurrection on January 6th. So 
I'm not at all convinced that Trump is going to come back suddenly with the keys to figuring out how to make the presidency work. Sure. Unfortunately, I, I, I tend to agree with you on that one, but I was just, you know, hoping maybe for a, a miracle there here, something optimistic, but uh, more reason, I think, to, to, to get out and vote if, if that's the case. So I'm curious, um, you know, if for whatever reason, let's just say hypothetically, you were asked to put out a new edition of Gatekeepers and you wanted to update it. So, you know, maybe you wanted to have a new chapter about current White House Chief of Staff, Ron Klain. Uh, what would you leave with or how would you sum up his work thus far? Uh, you know, we're only about halfway through the Biden, uh, Biden's first presidency. Uh, but how would you sum up Klain's uh, work? Well, I may have to disappoint you a little bit here, John, because um, the, the book isn't out until January and my publisher will kill me if I, oh, if I, if I start talking about everything um, that's, in, that's in the book. But, but what I can tell you is that, um, you know, I had really remarkable access to this White House, all of, all to, you know, I was able to talk with all of Joe Biden's inner circle from Ron Klain to uh, Steve Reschetti to uh, Tony Blinken to Bill Burns, the CIA director. And, and it's, it's, I think, a really surprising and intimate look at how this White House operates. Um, and um, I can't really tell you too much about Ron Klain, but I, but I really hope that, that people will uh, if they're interested, pre-order the book. It's, uh, it's called The Fight of His Life Inside Joe Biden's White House. You can, go to, uh, uh, you, can, you can go to all the places where books are sold. You can go to my website, chriswhipple.net. You can find links to pre-order it there. And I also, also have an excerpt from the book that's out, literally came out just days ago. And oh, it's- wow. And it's online as we speak uh, in Vanity Fair. The Hive is the online platform for Vanity Fair. And I have a, uh, an excerpt from the book that we put out months in advance because it, it deals with the, the Trump-Biden transition, which is an unbelievable story. Um, as we all know, it, it, um, it, it culminated in uh, well, it culminated in, in a transfer of power, but just barely yes. uh, after, after January 6th and all the rest. But, but I can tell you that it's really an inside story, an untold story uh, about one Trump staffer, an obscure staffer in particular, who in effect carried off the peaceful transfer of power, the transition under Trump's nose and without his knowledge. Oh. Uh, and so it's, it's really... A remarkable story and you can find it um, online if you google Vanity Fair or The Hive and uh, Chris Whipple you'll find it. Awesome I'll definitely add that to the show notes at the at the uh, end of the show as well I'm excited I mean I'm already sold on this book but uh, hopefully uh, listeners of this show will be as well. Um, I don't so for for like political reasons among other things I don't really love like the Mount Rushmore metaphor anymore so I'm going to switch it up I love basketball, so I'm going to use starting five instead. Who are your all-time starting five chiefs of staff? Like, if you had to pick the five best, and for whatever, you can decide what that means, you know. Um, how you define that is totally up to you, but the five chiefs of staff, maybe you felt like 
did the best job or were most effective or any way you want to judge that? Well, the basketball metaphor is, is an interesting one. Um, Jack Watson, who was Jimmy Carter's final chief of staff and a really effective one, um, coined the term javelin catchers for, for what the White House chiefs do. But he also said, you know, the chief of staff is a little bit like a quarterback calling the plays, but he's a lot like a point guard uh, mm -hmm. in, in basketball. Um, I don't know basketball as well as I know uh, hockey or tennis, so I'll, 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 I'll leave the, that to your imagination. But the, the five best, well, let me, let me start by saying, first of all, it's a great question. I, let me just say that what I think really separates the great ones from the, the good ones, and that is, as I say, there's no graduate school for this, uh, but the really good chiefs of staff, in my view, have been the ones who were, who were grounded. And it's, it's almost as, a matter of, as much a matter of character and personality as it is preparation or background or intelligence. Um, Jim Baker, James A. Baker III under Ronald Reagan, and, and I would say Leon Panetta, under Bill Clinton are the gold standard, the, the two guys that I would put above almost everybody else. Uh, Jim Baker was a 50 year old lawyer who had nothing to prove, who, who'd been around the block. He knew Capitol Hill like the back of his hand, but he could walk into the Oval Office, close the door and tell Ronald Reagan what he didn't wanna hear. And he did it over and over again. Same thing with Leon Panetta, who again had, had been around a long time and wasn't intimidated by Bill Clinton and could could uh, <clears throat> could tell him hard truths. Um, if, if I had to pick, well, let me just wing it off the top of my head. Believe it or not, Dick Cheney was one of the great White House chiefs under Gerald Ford. He was a very different, completely different guy back in those days. He was the life of the party on Capitol Hill. Believe it or not, he was, everybody loved him. He was the kind of guy you wanted in a room when you needed to achieve consensus. He had this wry sense of humor. The press corps loved him. Uh, and he was very good at managing uh, Gerald Ford. Uh, Jack Watson, um, whom I just mentioned a minute ago, had he been Jimmy Carter's chief of staff on day one, instead of only in the last nine months or so of his presidency, I think Jimmy Carter might have been a more successful president. Wow. Um, Jimmy Carter made the same mistake. Let's talk about Carter for a second before I fill out my list. Carter uh, was arguably the most intelligent president of the 20th century. He was trained as a nuclear physicist. He could, he could digest enormous amounts of information and distill it into policy. He was a brilliant guy. Ronald Reagan, um, not so much, right? I mean, he was once described um, as, as, a, uh, as, an, as an amiable dunce, which was really unfair to Reagan because he, yeah. he was shrewd, he had great political instincts. But Reagan understood something that Jimmy Carter never did. And that is that an outsider president, as the, and they both were, yeah. an outsider president has to have an insider White House chief of staff who knows how to work Capitol Hill and, and, and make things work. And Carter never understood that. He thought he was so smart he could run the White House by himself. 
Yep. Sound familiar? That's yeah. what, exactly <laughs> what Donald Trump thought too with the results that we all saw. He was, sure. he was virtually unable to govern. So um, the, uh, the, the fifth, as number five, I'm gonna throw in somebody many people probably never heard of. Ken Duberstein Ooh. was Ronald Reagan's third White House chief of staff after Jim, I'm, I'm sorry, his fourth. There was Jim Baker, there was Don Reagan, there was Howard Baker Jr. And then there was Ken Duberstein, his fourth chief of staff. Duberstein took over when Ronald Reagan was on the ropes, on the verge of being impeached for the Iran-Contra scandal, uh, which maybe a few of your listeners are old enough to remember. But it was a real scandal back in the 80s when Reagan went along with a cockamamie uh, CIA plan to, uh, to trade arms to Iran in return for the release of hostages in the Middle East. Uh, and, and diverted the money to some guerrillas in Central America. Anyway, um, Duberstein came in and he diffused that whole thing and he persuaded Reagan to, in effect, apologize on national television and turn the presidency around. Um, so that those five guys might be in my starting lineup. I love it. That's a good. That's a good starting five. I like it. And just like you said earlier, you you picked. You pick Republicans, you pick Democrats, you weren't, you know, just favoring one side or the other. I like that. You were able to play that one even right down the middle. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you also, because you have this vast wealth of knowledge about the, the you know, the position of the chief of staff, um, you know, in your opinion, who do you think is the best pop culture depiction of a U.S. chief of staff? And why is the answer Leo McGarry? Or is it C.J. Craig? Both are from the West Wing uh, and I, you know, maybe up between those two right there. I mean, it, that's a tough one for me to pick from. I like, I like both of those. I like both of them. Um, I've got to go with Leo McGarry, I think. Um, and one of the reasons is I, I have a, a story about Leo McGarry and Andy Card that's one of my favorites. It's actually not in the book. Uh, had I heard it before the book finished, before the book closed, I would have put it in. Uh, but so one day, Leo McGarry, of course, was the was the White House chief portrayed by John Spencer, the late John Spencer, the right. great actor who uh, portrayed him in, in Aaron Sorkin's uh, series. And so one day, Andy Card, who was at the time George W. Bush's sitting White House chief of staff, was invited to a conference where he was told there would be all these chiefs. So Andy shows up and he's greeted at the door and they're is the people who greet him are very excited. And they said, come on in, you're just in time to meet the chief. And Andy was looking around, who's the chief? And it and turned out it was John Spencer was there. Oh, wow. They wanted, they wanted Andy Card to meet John Spencer. Card is introduced to him and they look at one another, each other. Spencer looks at Card and says, how much do you make? <laughs> Card paused for a second and then told him, Spencer looked at him mystified and then said, is that per episode? <laughs> anyway, uh, it, it, it sort of, it, it goes to the fact that the, you don't get rich being the actual White House Chief of Staff. Sure. Uh, it's, 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 and it's also one of the most thankless, grueling, uh, relentless, 
24/7 jobs you can possibly imagine. It's it's um, as you know every every new White House chief of staff uh, picks up the phone and and generally calls James A. Baker the third. Uh, for advice. And the first thing Baker tells them on the phone is, congratulations, you've got the worst blanking job in government. <laughs> oh, that's a great story. And, and it's so true. You got to read this book, Gatekeepers, to, to learn how true that statement really is. So I want to transition now and talk about, you know, your second book, you know, Spy Masters. We've kind of already alluded to it a little bit, but I want to go a little bit deeper because you have this you know, extensive wealth of knowledge on the CIA and the directors. Um, I'm about, you know, halfway through Spy Masters now. It's a wonderful read. You know, please check that out as well if you're listening to the show and want to know more about the CIA, specifically the directors of the CIA. Um, I can't think of a better place to start. So what I'm curious about from your perspective, um, what do you think the biggest misconception the public has about the CIA? I, I feel like there's a lot, but if, if there's maybe one or, or maybe two you feel like really stand out, what do you think that would be? Let me, let me just mention for openers that, um, as, I, as I said before, the, my book, The Spy Masters, uh, was also preceded by a documentary Sure. which I did with, again, with Jules and Gideon Naudet and the great Susan Zerinsky, who later became president of CBS News, it, it, for, it, for Showtime. And the, you can find it on Showtime. It's called Spy Masters, CIA and the Crosshairs. I interviewed every living CIA director at the time, which was uh, really a, a, an unbelievable experience. And, um, and once again, felt that afterwards that I had to do the book. And I, so I would say the, per, maybe the biggest misconception about the CIA is that it's some kind of a, in, 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 Frank, in the late Frank Church, Senator Frank Church's phrase, that it's a rogue elephant. There's this conception that the, that the CIA careens around the world, pulling off all kinds of stuff, toppling governments, uh, <clears throat> killing people with drones and and creating all kinds of uh, mayhem uh, without, uh, without any restraint or the president's knowledge. And in truth, I think that while the CIA has made, is guilty of plenty of things and has made plenty of mistakes, generally the CIA is more of a restraint on rogue presidents. Uh, and, wow. and I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, Let's talk about Richard Nixon and Donald Trump. Uh, Donald Trump was by no means the first president to come along who thought that the CIA was a deep state full of uh, liberal enemies who were out to take him down. That's exactly what Richard Nixon thought about the CIA. Uh, and he blamed the CIA for giving Kennedy intelligence during the 1960 election that, that Nixon thought had made the difference in his uh, loss uh, in 1960, which really wasn't true. But anyway, Nixon blamed them. He thought they were a bunch of, of uh, intellectual, you know, pointy head uh, martini sippers in Georgetown who, uh, who hated his guts. And maybe some of them were, but anyway, um, Nixon tried, made the mistake of trying to enlist CIA director Richard Helms in the Watergate cover-up. And Dick Helms, who was a fascinating character in my book, uh, I really tell the story of the CIA from Helms 
uh, to, to Haspel, Gina Haspel, Trump's last CIA director. But Helms was a quintessential old school CIA director, James Bond-like, martini in one hand, cigarette in the other, uh, who could tell Richard Nixon and, and LBJ before him uh, what they didn't want to hear, uh, but it was just smooth as silk. Anyway, Helms stood up to Nixon when Nixon tried to get him to shut down the FBI during the Watergate investigation, thereby um, not only helping to sink Nixon's presidency, but also arguably saved the CIA, um, which had it gone along with the cover-up, I think might have been might have been its death now. But anyway, Helms was a guy who was certainly flawed, uh, crossed the line uh, on many occasions doing stuff for presidents that he shouldn't have done. But in the ultimate test, when Nixon tried to get him to shut down Watergate, he refused, he drew the line. Um, now fast forward all the way up to Donald Trump, uh, 50, maybe more years later. And uh, of course it, it turned out in a kind of, in my mind, kind of a, a nice symmetry that a, it was a CIA whistleblower who uh, sounded the alarm over Donald Trump's mafia style shakedown of Volodymyr Zelensky in that infamous phone call that led to his first impeachment. <clears throat> um, so CIA tends to, um, you know, it, 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 it often reigns in rogue presidents uh, rather than the other way around. Oh, that's a fascinating point. Yeah, I, I think so, so much of the public and myself even included for a long time felt it was the other way around. But I think reading this book, watching the documentary, which, I, which I'm hoping to do soon, well, again, will kind of shed more light there. Um, not really so having said that, I just, you know, look, look we, could, we could talk for hours, as you well know, and, sure. and we can't today about all of the major mistakes and, and blunders uh, that the CIA has made over the years. And, and certainly I write all about it. And yes. in the Spy Masters, the, um, uh, the weapons of mass destruction in Iraq would be exhibit A. Um, <laughs> Yes. Bay of Pigs would be Exhibit B, and 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 the overthrow of uh, of the Iranian government in 1953, the Guatemala government. We could go on and on, um, but for the most part, those those occasions when the CIA has gone way out of bounds, uh, they've done so generally speaking at the request of the President of the United States, and wow. and not on their own. Sure, sure. I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but the CIA recently uh, released their own podcast. Uh, I'm just curious, have you had a chance to listen to it? And is this podcast a trap? Should I be worried about subscribing? I know, you know, I haven't I'd listened to it. I, I, I heard this. Um, they haven't invited me on as yet. Um, but uh, so no, I'll be I'll be curious to, uh, to to tune in and check it out. Sure, sure. I think I've only listened to the first episode. But I think they've released a few more by now. So um this is kind of a kind of a, a, a kind of a, a reach here but i'm just curious i've been also i read your book but i've also been reading a lot of history recently and i recently read a book about uh, american history from i think it was 1815 to 1845 and a lot of that was the talks about you know ending the 
the uh, the Bank of the United States at the time, you know, our central bank at the time. And um, and, it, and and when I was reading your book, Spy Masters, I started kind of making these connections. It felt like, OK, during this period of American history, the United States Bank, our central bank, was kind of this punching bag politically. And the CIA historically has kind of been this punching bag politically. Like, are, are, are is there similarities here? Like, they're both these necessary institutions, but really it kind of feels like they are, again, sort of punching bags for, you know, politically. It's a, it's, it's a, it's an organization for, I don't know, Congress people or the president or somebody to point to maybe during time, during, you know, during rough times. Is there, is this connection, is it making any sense? Is it, is it like, am I anywhere close here, kind of on the, the nature of these two organizations, specifically the CIA? No, it's true that the CIA is always a convenient target. There's a there's an expression out of CIA that um, that sort of sums up um, the way in which they never get any credit. Um, they always get blamed and 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 rarely get credit for stuff. And the and the expression is that in this town there are only policy successes and intelligence failures. Yes. Uh, and that's, that's sort of the, the attitude out there. Um, it's also been said, well, I mean, one CIA director famously said that uh, you could never get rid of the CIA because then presidents would have no one to blame. <laughs> uh, so we will always have a CIA according to that theory. Uh, sure. John Kennedy, after the, Bay of, after the disastrous Bay of Pigs, a uh, completely botched attempt to invade Cuba and, and overthrow Castro with uh, mercenaries that was uh, just a, a pathetic uh, uh, fiasco. Uh, Kennedy famously said that he wanted to, uh, to uh, scatter the CIA's ashes to the winds, um, but it's still with us and uh, we'll always need spies. And um, I don't think the CIA will go anywhere. So having said that, they've, they've you know, the CIA has certainly taken, a, you know, its fair share of blame and sometimes justifiably, as I said before. And I, and I think that in the mid seventies, uh, everything changed with the beginning of congressional oversight. Um, prior to 1975, the CIA would pretty much had a blank check to run around and do do what it needed to do. It's it, the world changed in the mid '70s with oversight, and um, and that's been a really good thing in my view. Sure, couldn't agree more. Um, I've got a couple of Jimmy Carter related questions because I think after reading Gatekeepers, currently reading Spy Masters, and just general like modern U.S. history, I think Carter is one of those presidents that really fascinates me for a number of reasons. So. One of the things I think was really interesting when you're when you were talking about Jimmy Carter's presidency, there was this kind of what if moment in his presidency where it was whether or not to keep I, I want to say it was keep on George H.W. Bush as the director of the CIA. But eventually, you know, he moves on, he picks somebody else. Um, but I'm curious, is, is Carter getting that new director or getting a different director of the CIA? Is that like, if not the greatest what if, but is it, in your opinion, is it one of the greatest what ifs in, in modern U.S. history? Yeah, I think it really was. I mean, it was one of these sort of hinges of history where everything could have changed on a dime. Um, and what happened was that uh, 
George H.W. Bush, who had previously been uh, an envoy to China, and then uh, Gerald Ford called him back from what was then Peking to, uh, to become his CIA director. Uh, Bush dreaded the idea of being CIA director and then loved it, loved every minute of it. Uh, he loved all the spy stuff. He, he, um, he, and he did a very good job of rescuing the CIA from the sort of scandal plagued era that it had just gone through in the 70s, which I just mentioned. Um, Bush wanted to stay on when Jimmy Carter won, beat Gerald Ford in the, in the election. And he went and personally briefed Jimmy Carter in planes a couple of times and was in effect sort of auditioning to keep the job. Oh. Uh, and Carter decided very brusquely, he just said, no, I'm going, I'm going another direction. And he wound up uh, bringing in Stansfield Turner, um, a, a decorated admirable and admiral and, and brilliant uh, guy. Uh, who who turned out to be uh, a really ineffective CIA director, though. And, and on his watch, we, of course, had the Iranian Revolution, which uh, in 1979, which the CIA utterly failed to, uh, to see coming. Um, but imagine if George H.W. Bush had stayed on as CIA director under Jimmy Carter. He would not have run for president. We wouldn't have had Bush 41. We wouldn't have had Bush 43 uh history would have changed completely yeah yeah the ramifications it's it's kind of hard to even imagine so, but i don't think anybody i think people had forgotten how close we came to that and and that was an episode that i i i i dug up and and wrote about in the spy masters that's a fantastic story and it's something yeah i had absolutely no no idea about until i read it and was just blown away and knew i had to, to ask you about it um, another another kind of we've already touched on this a little bit, but I want to dive a little bit deeper. So I wasn't alive during Jimmy Carter's presidency, but I just think like your writings and other writings I've encountered about Carter just raised a lot of questions on my part. So I'll, I want to start with this one, or maybe this will be my final question about Carter. They're obviously more dissimilar than similar. But in what ways are the Carter and Trump presidency similar, obviously, besides them being one term presidents? Like, here's my thinking. They're both political outsiders, uh, both see and also both really seem to struggle initially on picking their staff appointees. And maybe that's potentially I mean, you can make the case for Carter and for Trump. I think that's part of the reason why they were only one term presidency. So is that where the comparisons I, I, I kind of feel like that's where they end. But maybe you have more knowledge on this where how do you think these two compare? I know, obviously, the politically very different, but organizationally, maybe more similar. Yeah, politically, politically, of course, ideologically couldn't couldn't be more different. Yes. But what but what they had in common is that they were the ultimate outsiders. Uh, there's no question about it. I mean, um, I think even more than than Reagan was, uh, Carter certainly an outsider. And when he came in, he he was um, he was some of his staff was ridiculed. You know, Ham Jordan and and some of the others were were Jody Powell. They were considered hayseeds uh, and uh, shoeless rubes. Uh, they were called uh, because these were guys from Georgia who had we're not Capitol Hill insiders. Uh, having said that, Carter's 
Carter had a very talented, very capable staff. His big mistake, in my view, was that he came in thinking that he could run the White House himself. And I'll tell you a quick story that's from the book about that, that I really, that's one of my favorites. Um, Jerry Ford tried to run the White House himself, and it lasted about two months. And he completely, he, he, he realized that he was completely wrong. He was, he was overwhelmed. He, was, he called it governing by fire hose. But they, they had a, an expression called the spokes of the wheel. And, and it was Jerry Ford's way of operating. He wanted to have six or seven senior staffers reporting directly to him. Um, it was a disaster. He needed a White House chief to be first among equals uh, and to be a gatekeeper. And so at the end, this became a joke in the Carter White House. And at the very end, when, when they were leaving, somebody gave Dick Cheney, who was then Ford's White House chief, a, a memento. It was a mangled bicycle wheel, uh, <laughs> which symbolized how they had realized what a disaster that, that was. Well, Cheney, Put the left the bemangled wheel on his desk with a note for the incoming uh, Carter's incoming top aide Ham Jordan, and the note said, "Dear Hamilton, beware the spokes of the wheel." <laughs> signed, signed Dick Cheney. But Carter and his aides ignored Cheney's advice. Yes, and the result was that. Carter was unable to really govern very effectively without a chief of staff. It wasn't until two and a half years into his presidency that he realized he had to have one. Wow. Took Jerry Ford a couple of months to figure out. <laughs> Carter finally appointed a chief, the wrong guy, as it turned out. Finally got the right guy, Jack Watson, in the final year of his presidency. Too late to save Jimmy Carter's presidency. So fascinating. Just, yeah, that, that whole presidency, you know, is just filled with potential what ifs or who, who knows, you know, things would have been a little different here or there. Well, Carter was also dealt an unbelievably bad hand. Yes. Uh, just, just, just in terms of world events and crises on his watch that he had no control over. Sure. And, and, and some of them will sound familiar. Biden in a way was dealt a similar hand, you know, uh, under Carter, it was OPEC gas prices going crazy through the roof. Yes. Uh, yes. And inflation sound familiar? Uh, all kinds of all kinds of problems he couldn't really control, and then topped off by the seizure of hostages, American hostages in Tehran, which of course was the final blow that really uh, doomed Carter's reelection. Uh, so um, it it wasn't you know it, it wasn't just his failure to have a great chief of staff let's put it certainly that. certainly yeah there there's a lot that goes into that a lot of context there as well um so we've mentioned earlier you've got this new book coming out the fight for his life inside joe biden's white house uh, i'm very excited it's dropping in january um i definitely will be pre-ordering a copy of the book i don't know if you can answer this or not but i'm just going to go ahead and ask um, do you have any other projects you're working on? Anything you can talk about, whether it's a documentary, whether it's another book or anything, anything creative you're doing, maybe uh, you're, you're pr are planning for maybe once the book drops? Well, again, going to have to disappoint you a little bit here because I, I, I do have a couple of things in the works that I, that I can't really talk about. Um, one is a documentary, potential documentary film. Um, 
and I've got a couple of other ideas for books that, uh, and we'll see how they pan out. Uh, but, but I will say about, about the fight of his life in, inside Joe Biden's White House, um, you know, you can really think of Joe Biden's whole life as a fight, uh, you know, against adversity, bad luck, tragedy. Uh, he lost his, uh, his wife and infant child in a car accident, lost his son to a brain tumor, um, lost a number of races for the presidency. His father always said, uh, get up, Joe. And he, and he finally, he got back up and he, and he won the presidency at long last, only to be faced with the most daunting array of crises, really, I think, since, since Franklin Roosevelt. When you sure. think about it, you know, a, a once in a century pandemic, uh, racial injustice, uh, and all of the challenges, you know, uh, the aftermath of, a, of an insurrection that polarized the country. Uh, and then uh, an almost perfect storm of crises from, you know, inflation to supply chain problems to uh, Vladimir Putin invading uh ukraine so it's it's a it's an unbelievable period of history um that i've written about and i really had a front row seat i mean an inside seat um i it was wasn't easy but i i really had a uh, amazing access to all of the inner circle and i think readers will learn a lot about um about all of these crises on on Biden's watch and how he handled them and some of the uh, palace intrigue that is pretty well hidden by this White House but there certainly have been um, there certainly have been fights over uh, over policy and uh, over Afghanistan the Afghanistan withdrawal and uh, I think I think their readers will will find a lot of great inside stories I'm looking forward to it I'm very excited about this this book. So I'm curious, you know, I think, or, you know, I'll give you another chance to share it, but uh, where can listeners of Knowledge Brew Supreme, where can they find your wonderful work, whether it's, you know, documentaries or it's books, anything, anything you want to plug right now? I know you have a website, you have a lot of cool stuff out there, though. Well, thanks. Um, again, people can go to chriswhipple.net. Um, you'll find uh, a lot of information about my books and my films there. And um as well as uh, a lot of my commentary, te television commentary. Um, the, spot, the, the two films um, you can still find on, on Showtime, you, The Spy Masters, CIA and the Crosshairs uh, is still available on Showtime. I believe you can find my original documentary on the White House Chiefs, it's called On Discovery. It's called The President's Gatekeepers. And again, it was a, a, a four-hour, two-part series, um, which I believe can still be found on Discovery. Uh, but again, uh, the book is The Fight of His Life Inside Joe Biden's White House. Uh, you can find it at Amazon, wherever books are sold. You can pre-order it. And uh, I hope people who are interested will do that because uh, authors really depend on pre-orders. Sure, definitely. So one last question, not a super serious question, but I ask everybody who comes on the show, uh, what are you watching? What are you reading? What are you listening to these days? Anything that's got you excited? Any books, shows, music, anything at all content-wise that you're, you're digging on? 
So um, I'll tell you one one book I'm really enjoying. I've just just finished it actually. Is Andy Borowitz's new book, um, Profiles in Ignorance. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, you know, we all think of Andy Borowitz as the, as a comedian, as a comic, um, and this book is very funny. But it's a book that makes you laugh and cry. I mean, it's oh. it's it's because it has a real, a very serious thread to it, and um, so I'm I'm enjoying it. And it and of course it covers a lot of the period that we're talking about, um, the presidencies from uh, from Reagan to Trump. Um, and uh, but it's it's a it's an entertaining read, I must say. Awesome! I'll check that one out. I'm definitely always looking for new things to read. Well, that's going to wrap up today's episode of Knowledge Brew Supreme. Thank you again so much to New York Times bestselling author, documentarian, political con- contributor. I mean, I can go on for days with all the cool things that Chris Whipple is doing. But So thank you, Chris, for joining me today. Links for everything that he mentioned are going to be in the show notes. So please go out and buy a copy of Gatekeepers and Spy Masters. Pre-order The Fight for His Life. Go watch the documentary of those first two books as well if you've got the access. Um, This makes episode 50 of Knowledge Brew Supreme. That's why I said at the beginning, this is a very special episode to me because I'm now at the halfway point. I'm trying to at least get to 100 episodes. I'm officially halfway there. Only 50 more to go until I reach that goal. So thank you for listening. Please share, subscribe, and review. Be good, be safe, and peace out. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.